Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. Welcome everyone to this uh, third installment of the Biographies of Interwarism series. I'll keep my uh, remarks super short. Uh, the series is co-organized by the GlobeIO Working Group, uh, the New Diplomatic History Network, the Center for Modern European Studies at the University of Copenhagen, and the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. The idea behind the series is very simple. We want uh, to present innovative uses of the biography as a prism to explore the many isms of the interwar period, bridging its 19th century roots and its 20th and 21st century legacies. And today we are uh, delighted to welcome Professor Christine Filio uh, from uh, UC Berkeley to give a lecture based on her latest book, uh, both entitled uh, Turkey, a past against history. So with this, I hand the word over to you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hakon. Um, I am really grateful to be invited to this for many reasons. And one reason is that it has forced me to think in a slightly different framework about the book and about the project, because I hadn't quite thought of the book in the context of interwar, of the interwar period and the issues or of isms necessarily, although there are many isms that we can bring in. So I thought before I lay out the kind of premise and argument and um, uh, layers of the book, I guess, I would just touch on a couple possible connections with this broader theme. And I thought, um, I guess the question of the extent to which Turkey as a state formation is an interwar story to begin with, right? That I think we could talk about for days. Uh, <laughs> we could, might get a start on that today. And um, I was in in isms. I was thinking in an in a kind of way the the creation of Turkey or the circumstances that gave way to Turkey and this whole story that I'm telling in the book is taking place in this space between constitutionalism of the 19th and early 20th century and self-determination, a new language that's emerging out of World War I and Wilsonianism, right? And, and I think as we'll see this conflict, it's not a direct, it's not a complete binary opposition, but there are these disjunctures between these two spheres of ideas and politics. And I think that might be an, a productive language in which to see both the small rivalry, the small conflict that I talk about between the main character of the book and Mustafa Kemal and the larger ideas that are um, kind of invoked in that confrontation. Um, so I've put those things out there and we can <laughs> think about them as I now talk about the specifics of the book. Um, so um, I guess my motivation was to try to understand the evolution, the, the sort of the transition from the Ottoman Empire to Republican Turkey and the evolution of politics therein um, by both starting from the 19th century and moving forward and starting from the contemporary understandings of politics and sort of the culture of politics in Turkey and going back. Um, and I <laughs> hopefully I was successful at that. Um, and 
what I, the argument of the book is, or the, the premise and the argument is that in the absence of a sustained opposition party, a sustained and sanctioned opposition party in the late Ottoman period and in, in Republican Turkey between 1908 and 1946-50, um, the concept of muhalefet, which I'll talk about in a moment, this concept actually served as a surrogate for an actual institutionalized opposition party. Um, this concept was actually more than just a concept and a word. It, um, As I try to show in the book, it was almost an arena of discourse, rhetoric, politics and conflict. Um, so it is, um, it is not a fully, it's not a consistent field in itself, this, this sphere of politics, because it actually is the sphere where there are these conflicting, um, conflicting needs and claims about constitutionalism, liberalism, republicanism, democracy. Um, so I chose this concept to get in kind of a transverse way to get at a lot of these contradictions and conflicts in Turkey. Um, now, so I guess, you know, what I noticed living and doing research in Turkey was that a lot of the conversations are about what Turkey lacks or what Turkey lacked and why it didn't develop in whatever, some normative way to create a fully consolidated liberal democracy. And, and I guess rather than take that tack, what I was interested in doing here is looking instead at what it had, <laughs> what unique features, actually positive features did develop instead of just what was missing. Now, this muhalefet, which literally means, uh, for those who haven't read the book or, or who are not Turkish, um, it literally means uh, what we would say in English, both opposition like partisan opposition and dissent, which is a more diffuse concept and can be practiced on an individual level. Um, it um, has kind of a unique connotation in Turkish today, I think, a muhalif or an opposition figure or a dissenter um, is someone from within the establishment that speaks truth to power in some way. It's not something, it's not about mass resistance um, it's, it's kind of a, an elite, it's kind of limited to this sphere of elite politics, let's say journalists, intellectuals, public intellectuals. Um, and, um, historically though, what I found is that the meanings of this concept evolved in these different, I traced seven different phases of late Ottoman and Republican Turkish history from the kind of mid 19th century um, till 1965. And then, of course, the story continues today, but I, it's almost a pray. The whole book is, in a way, a prelude to current understandings um, or a genealogy of, of the concept, if you will. Um, now, what I argue is that, broadly speaking, this concept also unlocks three key problems in the historiography of late Ottoman and modern Turkish history. And that is, um, first, it kind of allows us to unpack or parse out the <clears throat> relationships between liberalism and um, constitutionalism um, that oftentimes claims were made <clears throat> about constitutionalism and, and everybody claimed to be a liberal. And yet there was this illiberal 
um, undercurrent going on that then got played out in the, the Turkish national movement and in the Kemalist Republic. Um, and so liberalism and constitutionalism are not always coterminous or not always synonymous. And this muhalefet is kind of the opposition from within that forces us to kind of see the shades of gray there. Um, that goes particularly for the mid 19th century until 1908. Um, the second problematic that this muhalefet concept unlocks is the transition from the um, late Ottoman period to the Republican Turkish period. Um, uh, there is obviously a claim of rupture that the Turkish Republic first asserts and it becomes the dominant paradigm for decades. And then there is a claim by Eric Surher and others of continuity from the late Ottoman period through the CUP, the Committee for Union and Progress, into the Turkish Republic. Um, what I'm arguing is that by looking at the history through the lens of Muhalefet, we're actually able to transcend that binary between either rupture or continuity. And we can see the ways that both were true. Um, and the fact that at the time, the during the transition itself, this issue was already a key issue. The extent to which the power groups from the late Ottoman period, particularly the CUP, were being held over or were basically remaking themselves or recombining to form the Turkish national movement. And the very essence of opposition at that moment was to call out that continuity. So Eric Surcher was perfectly right and also not the first one to point out the continuity. It was being pointed out at the time. So Muhalifet also affords us a different kind of vista on the transition. Um, and third, um, when we get to the Republican period, by looking at Muhalefet, the claims of Muhalefet and the kind of actions of these Muhali figures, we also get to see the politics of history at work in the early Republic and the kind of the project to suppress memory of a lot of what was happening, <laughs> basically suppress memory of the political in the immediate um, pre-Republican period, right? That, that, that national unity was... Um, sort of insisted upon through the process and anyone who differed was not just not a muhalif but actually a traitor so muhalifet offers us this kind of again this midway category of someone who's sort of flirting with treason <laughs> from the perspective of the national elites and the national project but who isn't necessarily like we could argue about whether the muhalifs at that moment who are opposing the national movement let's say are treasonous or not or are they actually um, part of what could be accepted as legitimate opposition or disagreement within the national movement. So those are the three big um, rubrics, I guess, that um, that Muhalefet can help us shift and see differently. Um, now, um, <clears throat> in terms of how the meanings of the term evolved, um, again, I'll try to give um, priority to the interwar period, but it, it doesn't make sense unless we think about what was going on just before that. Um, so, um, what I argue is, that, and, and this is the seven chapters basically are, um, divided along these lines, these seven phases of Muhalifet, let's say, and, um, begins with starting in the mid 19th century when the constitutional project was hatched, let's say, by the young Ottomans as liberals, kind of elite liberal bureaucrats, very much educated in French and maybe Anglophile um, proclivities, right? They 
started to formulate ideas about a hypothetical constitutional order. Um, and then, of course, Mikhail Pasha and others actually drafted the constitution that was enacted in 1876-77. Um, and for them, Muhalefet was an important concept and it was, um, it was seen as a positive value in this hypothetical liberal constitutional order, that in order to have constitutionalism and democracy, you had to have dissent within. You had to have polyvocality, let's say. It wasn't just about one voice running the polity. Um, so that, I would say, was at the crux from the beginning of liberal constitutionalism. Now, the CUP, the Committee for Union and Progress, comes into being after this that the Constitution is suspended and um, in the reaches of the Ottoman military and in the um, in spaces of exile. And that is where a proliferation of ideas about constitutionalism and how to restore the Constitution come to be and lots of factions and disagreements. So there's there's a lot of that. They then ultimately formulate themselves as a broad coalition in favor of the Constitution as Muhalefets as a whole. So they see themselves as the opposition against Abdul Hamid II, who is the sultan that has suspended the constitution. So this is a different meaning for Muhalefet, right? They see themselves as these heroic opposition figures um, trying to rescue the constitution. And ultimately, they succeed in forcing Abdul Hamid to restore that constitution in July 1908. So those are already two different meanings for Muhalefet. Once the constitution is restored, the real interesting stuff begins because all of these different ideas about what constitutionalism is and liberalism have to come out. The Pandora's box is opened and all of these things have to be played out and the actual constitution has to be brought down to earth and they have to work out what are the institutional boundaries and the separation of powers and how are the non-Muslims going to fit in. All of these issues are coming out. And... Um, the CUP, who see themselves as the heroes of the story and the guardians of the Constitution, instrumentalize that document. And so there, there emerge two broad conceptions of what the Constitution should be in the Ottoman polity. One is the Constitution is the instrument for the CUP to maintain and increase their hold on power. And the other is this liberal conception that the Constitution, and it's kind of naive, I guess, because they didn't, you know, clearly <laughs> they didn't really win, that the Constitution should actually be the supreme law of the land and there should be institutions built, right? So these liberals kind of had a sort of naive trust that they could build these institutions. Um, and of course, geopolitics was not going to let that happen because the Ottomans were surrounded by um, enemies that were waiting for a vulnerable moment to dive in and take away territory and attack, right? So this is exact. So they didn't have many years to actually play out this experiment for constitutionalism. But in that context, Muhalefet becomes, it, it takes on a different meaning. And instead of being the broad constitutional coalition, it now becomes the people opposed to the CUP. So now it gets associated with this broad kind of liberal camp of there are journalists and writers in that camp, the people who object to the MO, to the modus operandi of the CUP, basically. And the CUP is itself changing at this time. I don't mean to say that it's a simple story, but the CUP is becoming, the power is becoming concentrated more and more in fewer and fewer hands as we go through this period from 1908 to 1912-13. Um, 
So there is a key turning point for Muhalefet that it becomes synonymous with opposition to the CUP, which tells you the extent to which the CUP was assumed to have become the dominant power, the hegemonic power. It wasn't opposition to the Sultan anymore. The Sultan was beside the point. The CUP becomes power to the liberals' opposition, Muhalefet. Um, so then we get World War One, which is kind of, you know, opposition Muhalefet goes into slumber <laughs> because we're in a war regime, right? And we're in a kind of a state of emergency where the press is, you know, it, it's only used for propaganda purposes. Um, and, you know, the opposition voices are just not able to do anything. Um, so it picks up again in the armistice period um, at the close of 1918, and that, again, is the next huge turning point for Muhalefet. A lot of different things happen in that period from 1918, 1919 to 1922, when the nationalists emerge victorious and force a um, force the um, scrapping of the Treaty of Sev, let's say, and force a new negotiation of terms um, for the peace. And then the Turkish Republic comes out the other side. Um, now, in that period, what we have is um, these liberal Muhalifs who had opposed the CUP, a lot of them, some of them still oppose the national movement because they see that as the CUP in disguise. The CUP has officially disbanded. The British, everybody is against. It's almost like the debathification problematic in Iraq after 2003. It's like they want them to go away, and yet they have penetrated so deeply in society and in halfway kind of creating a concept of Turkish nationalism that they can't fully be disbanded and evaporate into the air. So they reconstitute, recombine into a, a national first resistance movement, then independence movement. Um, and it's in this period, it's really fascinating because um, the Muhalifs who had opposed the CUP still call themselves Muhalifs and the, even though they are the ones in government now, the Ottoman government is supposedly in power, although it's not. <laughs> and the national movement really should be the Muhalifs, right? They're the ones in opposition to power. But the name sticks. So the, the, the words are very sticky because the political dynamic is still there. So the Muhalifs still see themselves as in opposition to the CUP, which is now the national movement. And the national movement calls these people Muhalifs too. So they still see themselves as the CUP. So it's kind of, it's very revealing the dynamics and the rhetoric that's happening in the press at this moment. Um, and um, so then we come out the other side into the Turkish Republic. And then they're, again, shifting meanings of Muhalifets that um, there is there is a limited amount of opposition in the first five years of the Republic and that, that the word is sort of used, muhalafet, but it's, I wouldn't say it's, um, it still has the same meanings. Then it kind of goes away altogether, like from 1928, when the Republic is fully consolidated, let's say, um, uh, until 45. We're talking about a single party Republic. So there isn't still a second party. And um, the word is, I, I would argue, and the title of that chapter is there is a world underground, right? There is kind of this underground descent. And it's within that one party, there are different wings that emerge, but it still doesn't actually play out out in the open as two separate parties. 
Um, so, um, and then the crescendo, the kind of grand finale is that from 1946, when they start to, when they make a concession, um, Ismet Inunu makes a concession to allow a second party, um, we, it ushers in this multi-party period. And in that period, particularly from 1950, when the second party wins and comes into power, this notion of muhalefet and the history of muhalefet kind of comes back out into the open and it becomes almost, it again becomes a positive value in a post-war kind of cold war atmosphere of the free world and sort of the, um, lionization of democratic values and liberal freedoms as opposed to the Soviet bloc and everything. Right. So, so again, it changes um, its valence um, at these different stages of politics of political evolution in Turkey. Um, now, how do I trace all of this? <laughs> I, um, it, I tried to humanize this story and I trace it all through the life and works of one Muhalif, one opposition figure, um, Rafi Khalid Karai, who was not actually a politician. He did not lead an opposition party. And that is the whole point. There wasn't real, there were very brief attempts to form opposition parties. He's not really involved in any of them. Um, so it is a little odd, I guess, in that in that framework to choose him as the synecdoche, I guess, for for this story of Muhalefet. Um, but for other reasons, I argue that he's the perfect person for this. Um, he is born in 1888 to a you know moderately privileged Istanbul family and um, of bureaucrats, basically in the public debt administration and the finance ministry. Um, and his life, I mean, his, he dies in 1965. So it's not by coincidence, <laughs> my choice to choose him, uh, his life follows the chronology of Muhalefet, um, and allows us to, to see all of those bigger changes through his experience. Um, and he does have remarkable, um, he does have like, he's remarkably in sync with these <laughs> broader shifts that are happening, um, which I cannot take credit for. Um, so he was, um, at a few different points, he was a bureaucrat, but that was not really the main point of his career. He was a writer. He was a satirist, a journalist early on, uh, a newspaper editor briefly. Um, he basically was often on the outs with the CUP and then with the nationalists. And so he occupies this strange position of being certainly a Turk. <laughs> he was Sunni, Muslim, Turkish speaking, certainly part of the dominant elite of the late Ottoman period. Um, and yet he, you know, Errol Kurolu at Boazici calls him in a short piece he wrote, calls him an anti-nationalist nationalist. So he is broadly part of what is becoming the national community. But I don't know. What does it mean to be an anti-nationalist nationalist? And I think it is telling us the extent to which the national movement was actually a partisan movement. So he is in that space where he's not in the dominant, he's not in the single party of the CUP, which then becomes the one party of the Republic, but he is more broadly part of this larger Turkish community. Um, and this helps explain why, even though he gets, he's on the outs at several different points, he ultimately gets brought back into the fold because he is part of that larger, um, establishment. 
Um, so he, you know, born in Istanbul, he goes to Galatasaray um, um, high school for a while, drops out. Um, he's, you know, kind of a creative guy, doesn't want to sit still and, and be disciplined and go to law school. Um, he comes of age just as the constitutional revolution happens in 1908. He's 20. Um, so he starts writing in the press. He starts writing satire, very in keeping with what's going on around him. He's not unique in that sense. There's a huge proliferation of, of newspapers and satire and caricatures, very popular. So he's definitely part of that and part of that, kind of part of that larger fray of constitutionalists that are not um, avowed CUP unionists, right? Um, that becomes more and more of a problem as the CUP becomes more and more dictatorial and authoritarian. So that by 1913, when they've taken over, they basically have had a coup d'etat and they've taken over um, the government, the state. Um, he, along with 800 others, is exiled to Sinop on the Black Sea. Um, and basically, this is all the intelligentsia, all the people who could pose a problem to CUP and be, an op be opposition in any way. They just ship them all off. So the good news is they don't kill them all. But they ship them all off and they remove them from the capital um, so that there then there are really no opposition voices as the war begins the following year. Um, most of those people get let back to Istanbul when the war begins. Um, he and only like 15 or 20 others, I guess he's, he's that dangerous. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or he's just that annoying. I don't, he um, has to stay in Anatolia in exile until early 1918. So he goes to a few other towns, Chorum and then Ankara and then Bulejik and ends up back in Istanbul um, as the war is winding down, but has not yet ended. Um, and then kind of the big drama is after the war comes to a close, he finds himself at this crucial moment, he finds himself as the director of the Post and Telegraph um, and Telephone Service for the Ottoman government under British occupation. Um, and this is the precise moment when Mustafa Kemal, this is the beginning of the Turkish national drama, right? This is the precise moment when Mustafa Kemal lands in Samsun, starts to mobilize the different localized national resistance forces and proclaims his movement in June of 1919. How can he proclaim it? He needs the telegraph. <laughs> he needs to communicate that message across Anatolia and to the Ottoman government. And Rafi Kayyut is sitting in Istanbul in charge of the telegraph service. So he is, so there is actually a one-on-one -on -one confrontation that happens. And that is, that I think is that moment when constitutionalism hits up against self-determination, right? Um, so like the whole kind of premise of the Turkish national movement is to fulfill the promise of the Wilsonian 14 points, particularly, is it point 11? That's about, is it 11? That's, um, that's for Turkish sovereignty or some form of Ottoman sovereignty. Um, and there's Rafi Khalid working for the British, a colonial, you know, collaborator, let's say, but in his eyes, loyal to the Ottomans and just, you know, doing what he's supposed to do and defending the Sultanate against these mavericks and these um, these rebels and upstarts. And so there is this kind of, it's a, it's a confrontation between two historical epics, maybe encapsulated in these two figures. Um, so he opposes the nationalists and, um, he continues to oppose them and to do whatever he can through the summer of 1919 to foil their attempts to spread information. Um, they go on and have the Sivas Congress in September of 1919, which is kind of the, 
kind of the constitutional convention, I guess, of the Turkish national movement. And um, <clears throat> he steps down, the cabinet that he's part of steps down at the end of that. And um, it's through the this armistice period that we see this fascinating um, uh, pattern in his writings that he actually, so he, he writes a proliferation of stories and, and essays viscerally opposed to the national movement, right? At, because they're the continuation of the CEP. And he, um, <clears throat> he actually goes as far, I argue, as to start to create kind of an archetype of a muhalif. He starts to then create a historical narrative for muhalifet, which hasn't been done before. And this is where I would argue he is the perfect person to use for this study because he is the one who actually makes the most rhetorical use of this concept. He's using this concept all the time. Other people might actually be opposition figures, but they're not talking about it all the time like he is. So we have this amazing sort of insight through his eyes of what this period looked like and the tragic figure of the Muhalif, basically. So even he sees at that moment that even though the CUP is evil and the nationalists are the CUP, these Muhalifs are somehow righteous, but also just totally emasculated and just impotent, like unable to actually go against in any effective way and create anything else. Um, so he's not stupid. He's not sitting around talking about these ideologies that should be, he doesn't have a map to get to someplace else. It's kind of Muhalif, it's opposition kind of just for existential, for <laughs> its existential sake, right? Um, so it's a fascinating moment that gets buried after the fact. And those stories actually that I talk about in the chapter on this get excised from the record in the Republican period. So it is, it kind of shows that it is a touchy spot <laughs> in Republican Turkey to look back on that moment when there was this space of opposition, even if it was doomed. Um, so yeah, so he then chooses exile. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, his, his immediate associate and superior was Ali Kemal, who gets arrested and ultimately lynched when the nationalists come to power in late 1922. So he sees the writing on the wall and escapes the country. So he chooses exile, um, and goes to French mandate Syria, Lebanon, which is an interesting choice. Um, and after he goes, the list of 150 is created and enshrined in the Treaty of Lausanne, actually, and he's on that list. And this is a list of 150 persona non grata um, in the new state of Turkey. So they don't get Turkish citizenship and they're banished. Um, so his choice is validated, I suppose. <laughs> his choice of exile is validated by the new Republican regime. Um, so he spends the interwar period. This, it might be interesting to talk about it like this. So he spends this whole interwar period from late 1922 until 1938, summer 1938 in Beirut, Aleppo, uh, a little bit Alexandretta, um, Sanjak, and he gets sort of involved in the politics there in that contentious territory in the interwar period. Um, and then he returns in 1938 to Istanbul when it's, you know, and then World War II, it's, it's interesting because in Turkey, it's interesting to think about the extent to which the term interwar even makes sense because Turkey was neutral in World War II. And so it was a very different experience for Turkey than it was for all of Europe, pretty much, and so many other places. Um, so that in some sense, Atatürk dies, maybe had World War II not happened, it would have maybe become a two-party state at that point, a two-party system, but 
the war just suspends everything for seven years or whatnot, five years. Um, so um, we come out the other side and he, you know, he gets let back to Istanbul basically on the agreement that he's not going to make any trouble anymore. So he's a very different kind of figure when he gets back. He consciously reworks his past um, of he takes his, you know, because again, nobody can read them because they were written in Ottoman Turkish. So when he gets back, the alphabet reform has happened in the interim. So in order for anybody, in order for him to have any measure of fame or notoriety, he's got to republish an anthology of his works to reintroduce himself to the Turkish public. So he does that almost immediately upon arrival. There are 39, 40, we, saw, we find a series of um, his publications being released in in Latin characters in modern Turkish. And, you know, with selective changes, <laughs> editorial changes to fit the new exigencies of Republican Turkish politics. So that is very revealing. And I track some of the changes. Um, and, um, and then he becomes a hero basically in the 50s uh, of the Democrat Party, of the Second Party. And, um, you know, we can talk more, but that takes us out of the interwar period. Perhaps I shouldn't talk too much about that. Um, the last thing I'll just touch on, well, obviously the literary piece, the literary level of this is prominent in the book and I haven't talked so much about it, but, you know, we're talking about politics and isms. So unless we want to talk about modernism in literature, it's not quite as relevant. Um, but the other thing I just wanted to point out is what I do try to do is and I think this is, is quite new, is to thread through this theme of um, memory and suppression of memory around the Armenian genocide. Um, because most mainstream histories of Turkey don't touch on it. Um, there is a whole field of scholarship about the Armenian genocide, about, but specifically about that. And so I, I think this is the first time that someone has tried to kind of integrate the two and sort of tell a story of the emergence of modern Turkey and take account for, you know, account for the fact that this event, these series of events in 15 and 16 were actually formative <laughs> for the modern Turkish Republic and for the way it talked about itself, the stories it tells about itself and doesn't tell. And this um, Muhalifet, this Muhalif perspective throws that off. It throws a wrench in it just ever so much because guess what? He was witness to one of the events um, associated with the genocide, which was the fire in Ankara in 1916 when he was in exile. He did not, as far as I know, he did not write about it at the time. He did write about it in August of 1921 when the nationalist movement was in full throttle and he wanted to expose the nationalists for being the continuation of the CUP, then he writes this incredibly powerful essay, eyewitness account of that fire. And I provide a full verbatim translation of that because I just think it's such a kind of <laughs> mind-blowing source from that moment. And he's he's evoking the memory of that event because of the partisan battle that's going on at that moment, not necessarily because for the sake of exposing that event, right? Then he goes into exile, he comes back, he reworks that essay into a much bigger essay that's more like a um, <clears throat> a pan, like an essay of praise about Ankara, the new capital of the Turkish Republic. So he puts it into a totally different context. The kernel, the nucleus of that account is still in there, but he has made very deliberate um 
revisions and redactions to to that text. And so I trace very closely what he has done. So through tracing the event and the memory and the texts of that, I'm making a larger argument also about the importance of the Armenian genocide to the formulation of Turkish politics and to the suppression, the kind of, um, I guess, the consensus among the new Republican elite to just suppress memory of that. Right. And, and he kind of gets in the way of it <laughs> at a few different points and then ultimately accepts it. He's not then going to call out. And, you know, by the fifties, he's pretty happy as a nationalist and kind of a chauvinist, um, because the nation state has been kind of consolidated. It's not under question at this point. Um, it's, I guess, secure enough that they can allow this second party. We can talk about where that goes, though, <laughs> goes to a cycle of coup d'etat after that. Um, but I do think that his story in, in its kind of unfinishedness, um, and, and the, uh, unfinishedness of his ideas and his kind of counter, um, narrative of history is pretty crucial to understanding the conflicted um, stance about opposition and multivocality in, in modern Turkey. And that's, that is why I, I end with this little anecdote about um, him saying in a letter to Riza Tevfik that one day he's going to, when all the emotions have subsided, one day he's going to sit down and write a dispassionate monograph about this whole story. And he, as far as I know, he's never written it. And so it is, um, you know, I, I think that's what I'm trying to say with that last anecdote that um, it, the sort of critical history of Turkey is an unwritten, it's still as yet unwritten. Um, and we need this voice, we need these kinds of voices incorporated in if we're going to really arrive at a, a complete and critical history of that polity. Thank you very much, Christine. Diplomatica. A journal of diplomacy and society.